If you have your Bible, turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is where we will be today. Today we unpack part one of Jesus's, the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Gospels, I believe that is the case. So we, we unpack part one. And as part of our worship on Sundays, every week we actually read the scripture together. So if you have your Bible, if you have not turned there already today, we're reading from John chapter 17, we'll read verses 1 through 5. If you're curious, I'm using the New American Standard Bible version, 1995 edition. It says this, Jesus spoke these things. What is he talking about there? Jesus spoke these things, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Why? He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one and only true God and Jesus Christ to whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you have given to me to do. I'm going to pause. What's the relationship between these two phrases? Moving on. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which which I had with you before the world was. Amen. Thus says the Lord. Thank you. As Sean was singing, I would just like to read a verse that that came to my mind. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And amen. I would like to start this morning with a question. How many of you have ever heard uh, someone say something like this, that we are meant to glorify God? Okay, there are churches that say our mission is to glorify God. What's the problem with that? What does it even mean, right? I mean, what does it even mean to glorify God? I mean, there, there, there are mission statements of churches almost everywhere that have that particular idea, but we really don't know what it actually means. I, uh, first through ninth grade, I went to Westminster Christian Academy, and the very first catechism, if you know that one, it's very famous, the very first catechism in the Westminster Confession is this. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I memorized that as an eight-year-old kid, and I had no idea what it meant for like 30 years. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Often our understanding of glorifying God is like my understanding of soccer, okay? How many of you have ever played soccer before? This guy didn't right here. I don't like to run long distances. I'm like a freight train. I just go fast one way, very short distances, okay? But I, I never really played soccer, so I really never really understood the rules, so I never really had the ability to really engage with it. I knew just enough about soccer to be naive, but not engage with it. 
I think that's kind of similar to our idea of glorifying the Lord, that we, we, we know we should, but we really don't know what it means. We don't know the, the arena which we're talking about, so we're a bit naive and much less understand how to actually take our lives, take every day, take every moment and every day, that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God. We don't really understand how to do that because we don't understand what it means to really glorify God. So what does it mean? How do we glorify God? John 17. In John chapter 17, you see Jesus glorify the Father. You see the word glory or a derivative of the word glory uh, used five times in these five verses. So you see this, this theme of glorifying the Lord. And then you see three different sections of the scripture in verses 1 through 5. And really what I want to do today is I just kind of want to take our time. I want to drive slow. I don't want to be driving on the interstate where everything is a big blur. What I want to do is drive slow and really see this text as it really is, to go deep down into it, to unpack. Uh, just, to be honest with you guys, John 17, 1 through 5, really all of John 17, all of the scripture, really John 17 is full, but really what we see in John 17, 1 through 5 is just a magnificent treasure of truth. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 17. That's where we will land today. We will spend all of our time in verses 1 through 5. As I said, we will take it slow. But when we pick up into John chapter 17, where are we in the Gospel of John? At the end, so Jesus had just moved on from the upper discourse, John chapter 13 through 16. So where we pick up in John 17 is Jesus is most likely in the streets of Jerusalem. He is heading towards the Mount of Olives, which is a small hill outside of the city of Jerusalem. There he waits on the Mount of Olives for Judas's snare. He waits there for his one-time friend turned foe to find him and handcuff him and have him arrested. And then the next day he is crucified and then a couple days later he is resurrected. So Jesus is heading to the Mount of Olives knowing that the hour has come, knowing that his friend is going to find him there to betray him. And Jesus has spent the last four chapters, John chapter 13 through 16, unfolding for us just magnificent truths on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If, if you weren't here for all of those sermons, I would encourage you to go back and actually read that section of Scripture. But for the sake of time, and for the sake of getting to lunch on time today, uh, it is important... Um, I won't revisit all of the truths we found in John chapter 13 through 16, but what I would like to do is just revisit the last couple of passages in that section. What did Jesus tell his disciples? What did he talk to them about in John chapter 16, verses 23 through 28? He talks about prayer. Now, what is prayer? Let's define what that actually is. Prayer is essentially having a conversation with God, that God is in heaven. We lift up our eyes to where God is and that we have a conversation with God. John chapter 16, verses 23 through 28 centers on the, on the theme of prayer. The point of those six verses is that because of the Son's obedience and the Father's love, we receive joy, answers, and access to God through prayer, that the veil is torn, that access has been granted to the throne of grace because of the blood of Christ, that we can approach God himself with our requests, because the Son's sacrifice was sufficient and the Father's love was solvent. In John chapter 16, verses 29 to 30, so you have that section is, is, is on prayer, and then in John chapter 16, which we talked about the last time I was up here, which has been a couple of weeks, so I'm sure we're a bit rusty on this particular section of Scripture. 
But you saw in John chapter 16, verses 29 through 33, that Jesus there is preparing his disciples for ministry. And what does he really teach them? What is the whole point of John chapter 16, verses 29 through 33? It is this, that we are victors through Christ, and as his disciples, we should what? Cultivate faith, claim the peace of God, and carry with us courage. And then we come into John 17. I must say that John 17 is one of my favorite chapters in all of the scriptures. I can look back upon my life for the last 20 years and just kind of see my life spanned. You know, at different sections of John chapter 17, I remember different moments of my life. And you see, in John chapter 17, if you have your text with me, I'm going to give you a quick, quick overview and then we will go straight down into our text. If you look at John chapter 17, it is the long, longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Gospels, if I'm not mistaken. And then you see in John 17, you see that it has really three different parts. You have verses 1 through 5 that Jesus prays for himself. You have 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. And then verses 20 through the end of the chapter, Jesus prays for those who believe in the disciples' word, i.e. you and me. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the way up to the Mount of Olives, Jesus prays for us some 2,000 years ago. But when we pick up in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, Jesus is kind of praying for himself. He is addressing the Father. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Today is going to be uh, pretty deep and in-depth. In and I hope you can hang in there with me and just see the text. I want you to notice with me, Verse 1, but what I'm going to do to really paint the context again, before I really unpack verse 1, I'm going to read the entire section of Scripture, and then we will go in deeper. Like I said, I want to drive slow today. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him all authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life. If you have a pen, circle that phrase. It is defined. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which he has given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which wish I had with you before the world was. Look at verse 1. Notice the very first phrase in verse 1. It says, Jesus spoke these things. The word these in the original language is in the position of emphasis. What is it talking about? Jesus spoke these things. It brings us back to what? John chapter 13 through 16. So after Jesus spoke the truths in the upper room discourse, he then lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prays. There's a lot in that one phrase. I just want you to think about, just very quickly, kind of in a nutshell, what is all found in John chapter 13 through 16. Think about the, the, the magnificence of that section, that beautiful piece of literature in John chapter 13 through 16. You see the truths about heaven. You see the truths about the Spirit of God, about discipleship, about the fruitfulness, about God's grace, about what it means to love and serve one another, what, what the plan of God is in the future. What else do you see? You see truths about the Spirit, about heaven, about hope, about joy, grace, love. It is overflowingly full. So after Jesus said these things, he then Praise. Notice the next phrase with me. And lifting up his eyes to heaven. Why does Jesus lift up his eyes to heaven? 
It says that is where God is. Heaven is the presence of God. Amen? So he is lifting up his eyes to heaven to pray to his Father. And then notice what he prays. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son as the Son glorifies you. The reason he prays is because the hour has come. Jesus, I just want to make an observation. I find this kind of interesting that Jesus prays after he gives truth. Let me just talk about practically for a second. When do we normally pray? We pray before we do something, but oftentimes we don't pray after we do something. But here Jesus unfolds this is magnificent treatise of truth to his disciples to help them live life after he is gone, after his ascension, and then he prays. We, we, we don't typically pray after, we pray before. We pray before we eat dinner, right? That's... My youth pastor 20 years ago said, if you don't pray before a meal, that all the food turns instantly into fat. Is that true? Um, ever since then I pray. Um, before. So, we pray before dinner. We pray before elders meet. I pray before I preach. But I think there's an appropriate place to pray after. That the glory of God is reflected back to him. That there is no absorption of God's glory to us. But that we merely reflect the glory of God in his truth. And then notice the reason why he prays. The hour has come. So glorify your sons that the son may glorify you. The reason Jesus prays is because the hour has come. When I was studying this text, I was in Panera Bread this week. I've graduated from McDonald's, if you remember those days. I, I now have moved up in the world to Panera Bread. It's a lot more expensive, by the way, to be there. Uh, but I see... In verse 1, as I was just meditating on John 17 this week, I see how Jesus reflects the glory of God. He doesn't seek to absorb it. Friends, listen to me. What is our human nature? Our human nature is this desire to be glorified. Our human nature is desire to receive glory. That we put athletes and coaches up on a pedestal for those that receive glory for their accomplishments. Men like Nick Saban and Tom Brady and LeBron James. That they are famous for absorbing glory. But there is only one being in this universe that deserves glory. Can I get an amen? That is the Father. That is God Himself. That we as Christians, that we should never seek to absorb glory. That we are humble servants of God. That we are here to reflect glory back to Him. I will say that that is one of the things I have really appreciated about this church in particular I've been, a, I've been the pastor here for four and a half years, and I have not met one person that has come to church here that seeks to absorb glory, but only seeks to reflect it. One of the things that's amazing about this particular church, and I mean this very sincerely, is that many of you over the years have been exceedingly generous to people in the church, exceedingly generous to the church, and I always hear the same memo line. Please don't tell anybody. <laughs> don't tell anyone who gave this gift. Why? Because they're not wanting to receive the glory. They're wanting to reflect the glory back to God. They don't want to absorb it. Friends, our lives should be one that does not seek glory for ourselves. Our lives should be one that reflects glory back to Him. That we have nothing that we have earned. Everything that we have is by God's love and sovereignty, and He deserves all of the praise and glory of this world. Amen? So you see Jesus in verse 1, he reflects the glory of God. How do we glorify God? The first blank in your notes is that we pray 
to reflect God's glory. But then you have verse 1 is kind of one section, and then you have verses 2 and 3 is kind of the second section of Jesus' prayer here. Notice verse 2, and I'll put it up here. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he, gave, he, he may give eternal life. The authority of Christ, mentioned here, permits him to give eternal life, and the victory of Christ provides him to give eternal life to all whom the Father has called. The Father gave Jesus authority, and Jesus then gives that gift of eternal life to those who would believe in him. But I'm going to pause real quick before I go on to my next point. How would you describe eternal life? The, the answer is in the text today, but how would you in particular describe eternal life? If someone came up to you today and asked you, what is eternal life, what, how, what would you say? You know, this week a few thoughts came to my mind that eternal life means I will live forever. Eternal life means I will be in heaven. Eternal life means I will be reconciled to God. Eternal life means freedom from the world of sickness and pain and death. But those are all, what's the problem? Those are all characteristics of eternal life. But that does not define what actually eternal life is. So let me ask the question, what is eternal life? Verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you have your text, what is the relationship between verses 2 and verse 3? Verse 3 explains verse 2. Verse 2 says that Jesus gives eternal life, and then verse 3 explains what eternal life actually is. So what is eternal life? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is that we may know God. Notice the next phrase, the only true God. That there are lower case G gods in this world, but there's only one true God. This is the that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, where Christ is Messiah, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not the lack of death. Eternal life is not the opportunity to fly through the rings of Saturn. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Eternal life is about knowing God. Eternity will be spent discovering who God is. Let me draw an illustration. If that sounds boring to you, then let me, let me just draw an illustration for you. I think we romanticize eternal life a little bit, like we're going to fly through the rings of Saturn. But I think there's going to be a discovery process of who God is for eternity. That they may know you. We're going to talk about that word know here in just a minute. But let me just ask the um, married people in the room. Okay, do you... I, 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 I've been married for almost 14 years. I used to be a lot better looking back in the day. I used to have a lot more hair and I was more muscular back then. Um, sorry, Laurel. Um, but if you have been married for any amount of time, do you ever stop learning about your spouse? It seems like almost every week or every month, I didn't know you did that. I didn't know that you had that story. I didn't know that you grew up there. I didn't know you did this. That there is a discovery process of your spouse that you have. I think that is a small, small glimpse of what eternal life is going to be, that we may know him. The Greek word for know 
is the Greek word gnosko. It, it, there, there are two different really words for know that are really popular in the New Testament. You have the Greek word gnosko, which is here, and then you have the Greek word oida. The, the, the word oida is like factual knowledge, like uh, the, the carpet is green. Okay, that's oida. Gnosko is an intimate experiential knowledge, one that grows. One scholar defines it as an experiential knowledge, as taking in knowledge to come to know, recognize, understand completely. And the New Testament indicates a relationship between the person knowing and the object being known. Eternal life means discovering who God truly is. The gift of salvation restores to us what was lost in the fall. That there in the, in the Garden of Eden, before the fall of man, that we knew the very sound of God. If you remember that Adam and Eve, why did they run? It says that in Genesis chapter 3, they heard the sound of God and then they ran. I believe the gift of salvation is more than just providing us justification before God. It is, that is essentially a part of it, but it's also allowing us the opportunity as Christians to be restored to what was lost in the Garden of Eden, that now we can know who God truly is, that we can experience Him as He has designed us. Eternal life is that we can know God as we're supposed to, as we were designed to originally before the fall. Pause. We put all this together for us. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. What does that tell us about God? That God desires to be known. That God desires for us to have a relationship with Him. That God desires us for to seek and to understand who He truly is. Twenty years ago, in this very church, in the depot, I heard a youth pastor, his name was Robert at the time. Robert came into my life as a 16-year-old punk who, you know, I don't know. Anyways, that guy was a knucklehead. He, Byron, the knucklehead, heard this guy say something. He said, Byron, that you are meant to know God, that you're meant to have a relationship with him, that you're meant to understand who he truly is. And that message totally rocked my world because to that point, I thought Christianity was just about being really a good person. I thought I was about kind of putting on a show or a shell or kind of an appearance of being good enough but that all of a sudden, for the first time, I realized that God is a relational God, that I'm meant to know Him. And here, it says that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, that in heaven we will know Him as we are designed to. We will see the radiance of His glory, the manifestation of His immutable character, the fulfillment of His will, and we will bow before Him as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, when we behold the very nature of of God. Eternal life is knowing God for eternity. How do we glorify God? We pray to reflect God. We believe to know God. Eternal life is that we may know the one and only true God, understand who He truly is. But there's a question. How? How do we actually glorify God? That, that was a proposition in the very beginning. That I said, the first catechism in the Westminster Confession is, what is the chief end of man that we may glorify God and enjoy Him forever? What in the world does that mean? Verse 4. I want you to notice the relationship between clauses. It's very important. I, I'll have it up here. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. I want you to make an observation. What is the relationship between those two phrases? I have glorified you on the earth, 
How did Jesus Christ glorify God the Father? Having accomplished the work which he has given me to do. How do we glorify God? By accomplishing his work that he has given us to do. If you want to know what it means to glorify God, it's right here in verse 4, the relationship between those two clauses. How we glorify God is by obeying what he's told us to do, by accomplishing his will. In other words, what? What is God's will for us? Glorify God means to be obedient. It means to accomplish his will. It means this, that every ounce of our being, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, every ounce of our being, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God, that we should look in the scripture. The, the will of God for, him to for us to accomplish is clear. It's in here. If you really want to glorify God with your life, then be obedient to the scripture. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which he has done, which he has set out for me to do. How do we know what God has us for accomplish? It is to understand and to obey the scripture. Let us be, let's prove ourselves to be doers of the word and not just hearers who delude themselves. If you want to, listen. If you want to glorify God, read and obey this. That's the gist. That is, this is our manual to glorify and honor God. In here we find the words of life. And in a word, what does it mean to really obey God? If we really are, at the end of the day, really obeying the scripture, what does it really mean? Sometimes, can I just preach for, or just poke for just a little bit, just kind of get open? We make the Bible and Christianity all about what it's not. Can I just say that? We make it about this religious performance, about just showing up, suiting, you know, suit up and show up. We, we act a certain way. We hide behind the masks of Christianity, and we really don't have the heart. What is the message? How do we really glorify God? If I could put it in a simple word, it is love, right? Love him and love others, and then if I love others enough, I will reach them and then make disciples. What is the message of the Bible? The message of the Bible is because of his love for me, it compels me to then love God and love others. How do we glorify God? Pray to reflect God's glory, believe to know God's glory, and obey to bring God glory. But don't miss verse 5. To be honest, I could stop right here and just move on, but I really want us to see the Trinitarian tension that we see in verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Notice, notice, notice this is like a little dance. With the glory which I had, with you before the world was. Here we see what? We see the very proof of the very nature of Christ. We've seen it throughout the whole Gospel of John. If, if there is a theme that runs throughout it, not only do we have eternal life by faith, that is throughout the Gospel of John, but we also see the theme that Jesus is not just some prophet, He's not just some man, but that He is God Himself. Amen? That He is not God's greatest creation, but that He is God Himself. We have this Trinitarian tension. We see throughout all of the I Am statements that Jesus is proclaiming Himself to be Yahweh. And you see the tension in verse 5. I'll revisit it. It says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Here in verse 5, you see this tension of the very nature of God. Glorify me together with yourself. The Son, the Spirit, and the Father are working together to accomplish the will of God and bring glory to His name. In preacher terms, 
the subject, the main theme of this passage is the glory of God, in my opinion, because it's used five times here. The compliment or how Jesus is describing that is that we pray to reflect God, reflect glory to God. We believe to know, to know God. And that we obey to give God glory. I'm going to pause for just a second, and, and, and I want to define something real quick. What, what is God? What is the glory of God? What do we, so we know for the first time, maybe in your entire life, what it means to actually, the chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What it means to glorify God is to accomplish the work that He's given us to do. In other words, the, the accomplish the work that He's given us to do is in John, it's in the Bible. But what does it actually mean by the glory of God? What do we, how do we define that concept? What is the glory of God? Defining the glory of God is like trying to describe the complexity of a human cell in seven words. That it is so complex and so deep and so difficult to comprehend that it is an arduous task to sum it up in just a phrase. But one pastor defines the glory of God in this, as the manifest beauty of his holiness. Glory is the going public of God's holiness. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. Huh? The glory of God is the manifestation of God's holiness. It is the manifestation of God's holiness. We see this example, we see this unfolded in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah goes before the throne room of God and he sees the very holiness of God and then he, is, he sees the manifestation of God's holiness seen in his glory. I will read an excerpt from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings with whom he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Glory is the manifestation of God's holiness, which you see here in verse 3. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him. This is Isaiah 6. Who called out while the temple was being filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I'm going to skip down to verse 8. What is Isaiah's response to beholding the glory of God? Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of God saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. What is Isaiah's response to understanding and beholding the very glory of God? It is obedience. Let me just put it all together for you. If we really understood the glory of God, if we really seek after Him, then we will seek to obey Him. And how do we obey Him? We obey Him by understanding the Scripture and living it out. Sometimes in life, we make the Bible a textbook. We make it something, this inanimate object that we seek to read when it's convenient and not really applied because it's inconvenient. Can, it, can, it, can anybody relate to that one? 
and it just becomes this thing instead of the living, breathing word of God that is meant to change our lives forever. Friends, let us not prove ourselves. Let us not be like the man who looks at his natural face in the mirror that once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's forgetting, immediately forgot what kind of person he was. James chapter 1, but let us rather be, prove ourselves to be doers of the word and not just hearers who delude themselves. If you seek to glorify God, then you must accomplish his will. And his will is to, that is to be accomplished is found in his scripture. It is here. So allow me just to, for the sake of application, for the few moments I have left, allow me just to talk to you personally. Number one, we see in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, we see Jesus' prayer life. Just let me ask you the question, how is your prayer life? This is not meant to shame you. It's not meant to manipulate you. It's not meant to, to, to make you uh, feel different. It's not the case at all. It's just an honest, sincere question. What I want you to do is be like the, natu- the man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. That we look at our face and then we put the face of Jesus Christ right in front of ours. And we see where we look different because the goal of the Christian life is to look like him. Amen? So where are we different? What is our prayer life? like we see jesus prayer in john chapter 17 verses 1 through 5 that his prayer is not meant to absorb the glory of god but to merely reflect it back to his father how is our prayer life number two how is our personal lives like i said it's not meant to shame you i don't i don't know you i don't know you deep down inside but if you could put jesus face in front of yours inside of a mirror how would it be different how is your personal life do we see the scripture as just this textbook that I saw in seminary. There was just this thing to be analyzed to death, but not something to be applied. How do we glorify God? By accomplishing His will. How do we know what His will is? Is found in the very pages of the Scripture. This is living and breathing. It is designed to help us live according to the will of God. And the more we know this and the more we apply this, the more we glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But this is eternal life, that they may know you. That is eternity that awaits us. It's not just some distant land of flying through Saturn and flying through Jupiter and seeing what it's like on that planet. I think we will be so consumed with the holiness and glory of God that those things will sound so silly in comparison to His majesty. But how do you have eternal life? It is by faith in Him. I, um, every Sunday morning I share the gospel, and a couple of weeks ago we had our elder deacon meeting at the Vision Retreat Center, and the first night every year, I've done five of them in a row, and every first night of the elder deacon retreat, what do we do? We sh- go around the circle sharing our testimony of how we came to the Lord. And I tell you, that first night is my favorite time. Because you hear about how people, you're like, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know you lived in Ireland. I didn't know you're a paratrooper. All this. You just hear about how God has called them. What was interesting, though, this past year is after everybody shared, I just took a pause in the group. And I said, what, is, what does everybody's story have in common? They said that God called them to himself. Here's the thing. Is that you gain eternal life by the provision and death of the son that his blood paid for your soul in full and your sin. 
And that if you would believe in him, that you would be saved. But there is a tension that we wrestle with that also God calls you to believe. Now, we can discuss the, the mix of sovereignty and free will, but not here, okay? Let's not, let's not cause a ruckus. Okay, but, but there is a sense of God's sovereignty that calls you to believe, that works you over. I remember where I was. I was 10 years old on my mother's floor, and it was like the Spirit of God was tormenting me to believe. Let me just say it this way. If you are not sure, if you're a Christian, if you're not sure where you stand with God, if you're not sure if you will have eternal life after you die, then I would imagine God is calling you to believe. Otherwise, why are you here if you haven't believed? If the God is calling you to believe, then receive and believe in the Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and be changed forever and spend your life glorifying and obeying Him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text in John chapter 17. It is uh, deep and it is rich. And Lord, even in 30 minutes, 40 minutes, I I know I did not do it justice. Uh, Lord, I just pray that that you would receive glory for our lives. You would receive glory from the preaching and teaching of your word. I thank you for those that are here. I thank you for the humility that they walk. I thank you for those that uh, seek to glorify you. And Lord, I just thank you for Calvary Bible Church. Thank you for those that are tuning in online. I pray for them today and right now. And Lord, be with the baptism that we have, that we get to celebrate new life in you. That the old has passed away and new has come. We thank you for those that have made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Be with the rest of the day. Be with the lunch afterwards. And I just thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.